Okay, good evening. So we're continuing on with the Dhammapada stories. Today we look at verses 186 and 187, which read as follows. Nakkaha panavasena titikami suvinchati appasada dukhakama itivinyaya pandito Api dimbe sukami su rating so nadi gachati tanha kayarato hoti sama sambuddha savako. So the first verse Nakkaha Panavasena Titikame Su Vijati, not with a rain of money, of gold coins, can one find an appeasing or a satisfying of, uh, in regards to sensuality, in regards to desire. Even if it were to rain gold coins, you wouldn't be satisfied. Appasada dukkha kama, pleasure, it doesn't last and is a very fleeting. Appasada is very little. Itivinyaya Pandito, thus is a wise person. Apidibesukami su, and even in regards to the pleasure of pleasures of heaven, divine pleasures. Rating so nadigachati. One doesn't delight even in that. Tanha kayarato hoti. One delights in the abandoning of craving. Samma sambuddhasavako. Uh, one who is so the, the person who does this is a person who is a follower of the fully self-enlightened Buddha. And so, to put it together in, in a meaningful way, the first part is easy to understand. And in, in, even if it were to rain gold coins, one wouldn't be satisfied because. A wise person sees that uh, pleasure is fleeting and limited. Even in regards to the, uh, the pleasures of heaven, uh, they don't delight, or he or she doesn't delight doesn't go to delight in that. Instead, they delight in the extinguishing or the ending or the abandoning of craving. And they are a follower of the perfectly self-enlightened Buddha. So that's a fairly um, well-known 
image of the Buddha in the Buddha's teaching of the rain of gold coins. We use it to talk about the limit, the limitations of pleasure and, and the unlimited nature of desire, which uh, makes them not very well paired. Desire is limitless, but pleasure, well, pleasure cannot be, uh, cannot match the unlimited nature of craving. Anyway, getting ahead. So, first the story. So this story was taught in regards to a monk who appears to have been on a, on a good path and he had one small problem and this was in regards to his father dying. When his father passed away on his deathbed, he said, here, here's a hundred gold coins. I mean, it was the currency at the time. I don't know how much it would have been worth, but not a heck of a lot, maybe like a hundred dollars kind of thing. And he said, take this hundred gold coins and buy a set of robes and a bowl for my son, who is a monk. He thought on his last, uh, his last moments, on his dying, on his deathbed, he thought to do something good, something of merit, some sort of goodness. So the so the, um, the his young brother came to see the monk, and he said, "Here's here's a hundred gold coins. Take these and or no." He said, "Tell me what to do with them. What should I do with these hundred gold coins?" He didn't even mention, I don't think, the the robes and the bowl. But he, he the monk said, "Oh no, no, I can't." I have nothing, I don't need anything, and I don't, uh, I'm not allowed to take money. I don't want to have anything to do with it. So he's following the, the rules, following the, the teachings. No, no, no we, we let go of all attachment. We, 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 de we denounce all this. We renounce all this. Denounce, we renounce it all. And so the brother, the younger brother went away. But, and this is where uh, I think we find an instruction. Just saying it and determining on the idea of not clinging and not craving and not holding on and not, not possessing the money uh, wasn't enough to actually overcome his, his tendencies to desire. So while he was meditating, from then on, he started thinking about what he could do with this money. And it seems he didn't really have a grasp on how little a hundred gold coins was actually worth, but I don't think that's really the issue. The issue is just something so small as what would be the equivalent of maybe a hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars, I don't know. Let's say a thousand dollars, it's a little bit more. Uh, what that did to his meditation, just that seed, it's like planting a seed and then it, it grows in his mind so much. And so he started thinking about how he would use it to get married and how he would use it to start a, a livelihood and maybe become rich and you know invested in farming maybe and then uh, go on and, and 
attain great things with this money, right? And as a result, his meditation failed miserably. He spent all of his time thinking about this money that was owed to him and imagining more and more and so on. It's probably one of the reasons, I think it's, it's, it's related to the reason why monks aren't allowed to ask for things and aren't allowed to um, give ideas to lay people. If, if a lay person wants to give a gift in a certain way, monks aren't allowed to redirect them and say give it in another way. Because it's very easy to get caught up, like if a lay person, if, if supporters or, or people who have um, some kind of faith in monks or, or, or religious, well, the monks, let's say, if they, uh, if they offer, you know, to, to give food to the monks, anything you want, then the monks will sit there and uh, start to think about what they would like and start asking for certain types of food and as a result we have rules where we aren't allowed to give, we aren't allowed to request fine foods and so on. It's the kind of thing you can probably appreciate here in the meditation center. Uh, having such a, apparently we have a, a wide range of food that you could, you could eat. You find yourself probably in the evening or even in the morning thinking about what you're going to make for, for lunch. thinking I think it's probably a good a good reason to have a cook have someone cooking food right so you don't have to think about what you're going to eat and as a result it doesn't distract you from your practice anyway just sticking to the story uh, the, the end of it was that the monks started to see that this this guy wasn't doing so well he was turning yellow he wasn't very eating he wasn't meditating, he was very stressed and unhealthy, sick in the body, sick in the mind. And so they asked him, what's wrong? And, and uh, I can't remember, they brought him to the Buddha, and the Buddha asked him, what's wrong? And he told the Buddha, oh, there's this hundred gold coins, and I'm thinking, you know, why? he started thinking to himself, why, uh, why should I stay as a monk when I have all this money waiting for me? when I have this other great life waiting for me. And so the Buddha kind of put it all in perspective for him. He starts asking him, what can you get for a hundred gold coins? And he, he says, well, let's take some pot shards. And they took pieces of pot to represent these coins. So we have a hundred of these pieces of, a, you know, just pieces of ceramic. And we counted them out, and he counted out how many it would cost for uh, a couple of cows and how much it would cost for a house and, and, and all these other things and he found, oh, it's actually not a hundred gold coins isn't nearly enough even for that. And then he started telling him to put it in perspective. He said, oh, this is the way of craving that it, it can never be enough. And then he told a story, the story about these gold, this rain of gold coins. He talked about how in ancient times, one of the Jataka stories, how there was a king, and this king had everything, had the greatest luxury and the greatest wealth. And he kept amassing and accumulating greater and greater wealth, and it just 
he came to his his ministers and he said it's just not enough I have this I have gold I have jewels I have palaces and elephants and servants and land everything I could ever want but it's not enough he said what where can I get more so he asked his maybe his uh, religious advisors and they said well the um, you know the four great kings if you really want to have something better than this there are these divine beings called the four great kings that we can go to uh, that that have have greater wealth and greater uh, sensual pleasure than you do and he said well then let's go and so they somehow I don't know I, it's a story they went to this heaven of the four great kings and he brought all of his kingdom there and, and he and the four great kings saw him and said oh this is the king of the world the emperor of, of earth and they welcomed him and they said okay you can come and live with us and he lived with the four great kings and uh, lived in such great heavenly pleasure with these uh, palaces and parks, heavenly parks and heavenly food and music and flowers and everything just far beyond what we have on earth. And he lived there and he, 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 he built up this great life of, of divine pleasure. And, and more and more and more and eventually he came to his his um, ministers and he said it's not it's still not enough he says what here I have everything I could want here but I need more and so they brought him to and they said well there's the four great kings said there's well you know there's something greater than this and that's the heaven of the 33 Dawadingsa even we're like servants compared to them. They're they're like kings. Uh, if you, if if uh, we're a servant, then they are the king. And he said, "Well, let's go there then." And so he took his whole kingdom up to the realm of the thirty-three, and met with Saka. And Saka said, "Oh, welcome, welcome, king of the earth. Yes, come." And he split his kingdom, the kingdom of the thirty-three, in half. And he said. You can reign with me, we will be kings together. And he lived in the heaven of the 33, which made uh, made the four great kings look like servants, look like nothing in comparison. And it was just the greatest sensual pleasure and enjoyment of life that you could ever imagine. I mean, we couldn't even imagine. One of the, sort of the highest sensual pleasure possible. And uh, Saka went away on some, I don't know, went to earth probably to see the Buddha or something, I don't know. And this king built up his, his wealth and, and indulged so greatly in sensual pleasure, but he came to his ministers and he said, this isn't enough, I want more. And so he decided that, he, he said, uh, I think it's, I think... Um, the right thing to do is I'll take over all of the heaven of the 33. And so he decided he would kill Saka. Saka was the king of, king of the gods of the 33. And he tried to kill 
he comes to 33 and he didn't succeed. The, the story says that his anger was his downfall. You see, in heaven you can't, anger, anger leads to death in heaven. The anger is the sullying of the mind, and so all of the good qualities that lead to heaven uh, couldn't last. And as a result he died, he went to earth and died. Anyway, it's a Jataka story. But the, the moral of the story that the Buddha gives is, is in the verse that we make more and more out of uh, craving and pleasure can't keep up. He says, uh, craving is an unlimited, is limitless. Uh, even a rain of gold coins isn't enough for a person who has craving, who is bent upon craving, and so on. So anyway, the story is the story is instructive in that sense of describing particularly how we make more out of things than they actually are. And that goes not just with cravings. You know, craving for food is one good example. You know, you're here and you start to think about all the food that you might eat and it distracts you from your practice. Um, even more, you think about the food that you're not able to eat here. Cheeseburgers, pizza. They'll bring up all the good food. What's some good food? Uh, maybe just a nice bread and cheese or um, pasta meatballs, tacos. Let's think of all the really delicious food and I'll just torture you with it sitting here, right? But when I bring it up, you'll start maybe thinking about it and, and more, I think more uh, likely, you're already torturing yourselves with it. This happens to monks. I've heard of, in Asia, there's not a lot of bread and there was one German nun who came and said, you know, I just have this intense craving for some good German bread. So you'll be sitting in meditation thinking about enjoying a cheeseburger or something. And one thing you realize in, in mind, being mindful is how unsatisfying that all is. Because if in the evening you're thinking of the good food that you're going to eat in the morning, and then in the morning when you're mindfully eating it, you realize how ephemeral it is. And that's what's in this, uh, in this verse, in this story. So we're dukkha, dukkha. Dukkha is spelt almost like dukkha, which means suffering, but it's maybe where the word suffering comes from. Ka means to last, and du, du means, means bad or poor or, or evil even, but here it just means poor, like, like not well able to last. Dukkha means uh, ephemeral, really, not lasting. Eat a cheeseburger, or, or whatever. You know, cheeseburgers, I think a lot of people like cheeseburgers. Eat it, and you think, oh, this is so wonderful. And then it's gone. And that's it. But what's not gone, of course, is the craving, the desire for it. And it comes back again and again and becomes more intense until... You need better and um, 
more delicious food and are, are more easily triggered by food that's not delicious. Very hard for people who are ca caught up by craving for food to be at peace when they have plain, ordinary, perhaps uh, tasteless or well, foreign food even. But even putting aside these sorts of cravings, this isn't this verse is, this story is instructive for how we make more out of things than they actually are. So this monk took these this very small amount of money and turned it into a whole life that he was going to build for himself. You find your mind doing that as well. It's why we don't allow meditators to have contact with the outside world. Because they turn molehills into mountains, they say. You might get an email from someone and suddenly you're lost and meditate. your mindfulness is gone, your meditation is ruined and instead you're thinking about your life and all the things you could be doing, should be doing. We had one meditator once who quit halfway through a course because he suddenly got inspiration uh, on how he was going to become rich. Uh, exactly along the lines of this story. And uh, when he left, he said, in four years, I'm coming back and I'm going to build, I'm going to build a great meditation center here. You know, uh, spend all my money or half my money or I'll be rich, you'll see. That was um, 15, 14, 15 years ago, I think. It still hasn't come back. So if he's out, if that person is out there anywhere, well, not sure what happened to them. But you know, it may be possible they're rich and they've just forgotten about us. But much more likely that uh, they made a mountain out of a molehill. This little idea, this fantasy, right? Out of um, something that wasn't there. And we do that with so many things. It's, a, it's an instruction for us in the meditation practice not to get carried away by our thoughts. It's very easy for it to become something that it's not. And, and it's not even just a temporary thing. It's not like we're saying, well, wh while you're here you have to put aside your life. It's about living in a better way where we don't build these grand plans that never come to fruition. Because living your life like that is unstable, it's unsustainable. It's stressful. It's, uh, it's, um, causes disappointment and well, suffering. So when we talk about living in the present moment, it's not just when you're sitting on a, on a mat meditating. It's about learning to live your life in a way that is not in the future, is not in the past, as a way of life. Changing the way we look at the world so that our planning and our remembering are, are not consuming. It doesn't mean that you can't conceive of a plan or, or remember something. It's about not turning them into something they're not. When you plan something, it should be, well, now I'm going to do this. It shouldn't be, if I do this, then that will happen and all. You know, more and more it will become 
and I'll become king of the world and then I'll go to heaven and so on. Become king of the gods, you know, wherever it will end. We go through life like this and we are constantly disappointed because it will eventually butt up against reality and your dreams will be shattered. Like this strange story of the king that went to heaven. Eventually his, his greed caught up. He, he reached a limit. He couldn't go any further and so it gave way to anger and, and hatred and ill will towards the king of the gods which um, just demolished his house of cards that he had built up, built up. So that's the story. I think that's the main lesson that we get here. It's, a, it's an example that's useful for not just meditators but people to, to not get caught up in fantasies or, or even just thoughts. Don't let things become a seed for growing an impossible fantasy or something that where your craving outstrips the reality. But the verse is, I think, um, has, has, I think, a, a deeper lesson. And it's related to, really, one of the core principles in Buddhism is that craving causes suffering, or just craving in general. It's a verse, on, or two verses on craving, on desire. And so it talks about two different dhammas, two different entities. The first one is the pleasure itself, and the second is the craving for the pleasure. And as I said, they have different qualities. So craving, well that's not pleasure. Pleasure has two things about it that the Buddha says here. One is that it's ephemeral. Ephemeral means it can't last dukkha. And this is when you're eating the cheeseburger and uh, it's delicious when it's there and then it's gone. But the other quality that I think is harder to see but very easy to see when you're meditating, when you're mindful, is how little pleasure is actually there. We, we build up the pleasure in our, in our minds and our brains r resonate and, and give us a sort of a, I don't know, serotonin or dopamine or all these, I don't know, I just know the names of these chemicals in the brain that give us this rush. And we think, you know, it, it, it creates a, a perception that there's so much pleasure there. Oh, this cheeseburger is so great. But if you're ever mindful as you're eating it, you realize that it's almost as though the pleasure isn't even there. It's, it's like an illusion or mirage. Because the feeling of pleasure is just another feeling. And all of the, the pleasure and enjoyment is all this illusion that we create a narrative in our minds when we say how great it is. It's hard to see, but when you're mindful you see it immediately and then it's like, oh, where did the pleasure go? It was, and if you do it enough you start to realize that the pleasure wasn't there really. What was, what was there, what we call pleasure, is just a, another feeling. And our enjoyment of it was all a working up, a creating, a hyping it up, which does again give rise to pleasure in the brain, but even all of that is just just more feeling.
and these two together, the, the ephemeral nature and the limited nature, how little pleasure is, how little happiness is actually involved in sensual pleasure, two of the main lessons that you learn, you can see them very quickly in, in meditation. It's not that they're hard to see, what's really is that it's hard to maintain because the narrative, the story, the making so much out of it is so powerful, so strong. And we have to separate these two. That first one is pleasure, but this one, this is the craving. And this is the first part of the first verse where he says, even a rain of gold coins wouldn't satisfy it. It's not of the nature to be satisfied, it's fire. The Buddha said, Nati tanha samar agi. There's no fire like craving. And that's a, you know, fire is really the perfect analogy for craving. Well, it's perfect in, in a limited sense, because you can smother a, a fire with fuel. If you put enough wood on a fire, you can actually smother it. But you can't do that with craving. So, I mean, that's why he says there's no fire like craving. It's, it's worse than any fire. Because fire, you can put it out with fuel. Craving, the more pleasure you give to craving, the more craving there is. There is no possibility of satisfaction. It's exactly the opposite. Once you... Once you run through, run out of pleasure, all you've got left is craving. Not, not even just as much craving, you've got more craving. You've built up craving. Why is that? It's the same as with anger, depression, worry, anxiety. There's nothing particularly uh, unique about craving. It's just that our mental activity creates habits, it creates engrams, it creates uh, patterns. Mindfulness is the same. Eventually, you know, it might not seem like it, but eventually you get better at being mindful. You get more comfortable and more familiar with it, and it becomes your engram, your pattern, your, your habit. And you're less inclined, and it becomes kind of like a, well, it can become a, uh, a feedback loop where you're more and more mindful and less and less clinging. And that, that sort of build-up of energy, of, of clarity, is what leads to letting go of everything. I mean, you don't have to see everything to let go of everything. You just have to build up such a sense of clarity. So it works with all mind states. Craving is just one very pernicious example. Craving perhaps more than anger, say, because anger is unpleasant. But craving is, well, it's associated with pleasant feelings. Can be. Neutral feelings. And so it's very easy to become addicted. It's very, very hard to give up addiction because, well, there is a pleasant, pleasant feeling. And it's just that kernel of, of pleasure that bursts into a whole narrative on how great something is, how wonderful food is, sex, uh, music, art, relationships, family, anything. 
leads to craving, clinging, attachment, needing. And then we need more and more and more. And for most of us, we're living in, in the human world where, as ordinary people, we're pretty, we're, we're lucky in the sense that we're disappointed a lot. And that disappointment moderates, it tempers our desire. Having to be disappointed, disappointed is actually quite useful in that sense. Because if you're constantly disappointed, well, you get a sense of, okay, don't cling too hard because you're going to lose it. But there are so many examples of how we, we miss that with family, and so when someone dies, because family is always there. Family, unlike friends, let's say, are, are very constant. You can always depend on them until you can't, until they're gone. And then it's more devastating. It's more devastating to lose a family member than just a casual acquaintance. Uh, I, I heard a story about a rich, or I, I, I heard about a, a rich man in America one of my students was a friend of his, and he said, this guy inherited a fortune, and he just spends all his time uh, snorting cocaine. He, he just constantly, I mean, that, he's, he's completely addicted, and he spends millions or yeah, millions of dollars on cocaine, and that's all he does. And he was describing this guy's life, how it, he just had no concept of, of disappointment, right? that it led him. I mean, it, it wasn't like one day he decided I'll snort cocaine all day. It's like enjoying pleasure, you know, not being disappointed, so wanting more and getting to the point where uh, you have no sense of the dangers of addiction. And drugs are, I think, like that because they blind you to the to disappointment. It's a very easy way to uh, get complete pleasure. I think, as a result, the, uh, um, freedom from addiction, overcoming addiction, like say with smoking, for example, um, you know, it, it has a very definite means of accomplishment if you want to give up addiction, simply by mindfully appreciating the nature of the pleasure and the addiction, being able to separate them out the wanting of the pleasure and the pleasure itself uh, sort of breaks it all down and, and, and allows you to see the, the truth of it. That, that it were completely, it's completely blown out of proportion and there's no real satisfaction or happiness here. So those two things, I think, one, the nature of pleasure and two, the nature of craving are, are very important in this verse. But the third thing that I think is important here is that the verse talks completely about uh, the disadvantages or the limitations of pleasure and the dangers of craving, but it doesn't give any alternative. And that's important because this verse doesn't, on the face of it, say anything very different from what people were saying at the time of the Buddha, and that's that desire is, is dangerous and sensual pleasures are limited. Uh, but the, the, the conclusion that people came to, of course, at the time was to then torture yourself, was to deny, denounce, and renounce craving. Not only renounce, but denounce, to say it's bad and get away from it. So you would, put, you would go naked even, but you would go off in the forest and give up all your luxuries and 
jewelry and so on. And you would live a, a, a life of displeasure, really. And that's not the way in Buddhism. So I think the third lesson that this has for us is that the Buddha is not saying to avoid these things. He's saying to see them clearly, and that's why he uses the word iti vinyaya pandito, to thus sees a wise person. It's not like you come here, you have to see this and, and then practice. That's what you're trying to see in the meditation. You're not wise people yet. I mean, I don't know if you are, but you're coming here because you have the feeling that you're not, you're missing some wisdom. And so the process of the course is to come and see this, to come and see that uh, your craving is causing you disappointment. Your, the pleasure that you gain is not actually satisfying. It's not actually enough. And so our whole practice, rather than avoiding these things, is about learning about them. Learning about pleasure. And this is when, when the Bodhisattva found the middle way. This is why he said to himself, Oh, here's this meditation, this other way, that's actually quite pleasurable. And he thought, uh-oh. Is that a problem? Is it, is it a problem that this way is? And he said, no, this is, this is not a problem. Actually, wait a minute. Pleasure isn't the problem. And it, it changed everything. It was a totally new idea. And also that craving itself. Craving itself is not, not exactly to be avoided. It's to be studied and to be understood. When we're mindful, we say wanting, wanting. That's quite clear. We have no sense of avoiding even the wanting. You see, because avoiding, what, what happens when we avoid is it, it becomes a, a boogeyman, it becomes some kind of a thing, and we, we have no way of dealing with it, and so we just go with it. We say, I can't control myself, I want it. I'm not strong enough, and we go with it. We, we weren't even looking at it, really, because when you look at it, you, it disappears. It, it has no power. Of course, learning to look at it is very, this is a great challenge. I, I think this, um, this sort of ties into this kind of misunderstanding about what we call samma-samadhi, which means right concentration. Because people talk about how in meditation they claim that you have to do away with all the hindrances before you can before you can practice or it's the first step before you can practice insight meditation before you can see clearly you have to give up all the hindrances and they, they say it's and they quote these texts where the Buddha says the hindrances prevent you from seeing clearly absolutely there's no question there but they're misunderstood you know it, it's it's very easy to, to quote things out of context and to take things more as more definite or more um, absolute than they actually are. And the thing about samasamadhi, when you have no hindrances, is that's referring to the very pinnacle of the practice, pinnacle of the path. When you get to that last moment, samasamadhi, or the whole of the Eightfold Noble Path, is only one moment. It, it, it has to be. Because once you are on the path, any one moment where you are on the path, meaning everything is perfect, you have right view, right thought, etc., etc., 
has no um, has no um, I'm sorry it, it leads direct, there, there's no doubt has nowhere to lead but to freedom from suffering that one moment is the moment before the attainment of, of Nibbana, of letting go I mean that moment there's there's no other way for it to go but letting go and so all that we're doing now is getting to that point. And how do you get to that point? Well, yes, you learn ways to give up craving, of course. But it doesn't mean that you, you, you have to start by eliminating them. And that's quite clear in the Satipatthana Sutta. The Buddha talks about the five hindrances as an object of meditation. It should be quite clear from your practice. When you, you want things, it doesn't stop you from seeing clearly. It, it, it becomes an object of trying to see clearly. You start to see it clearly. And you start to see clearly how it stops you from seeing clearly. You see how when, you're, when you are caught up in craving, it's actually a de to your detriment. It's a hindrance. You see how it's a hindrance. You see how anger is a hindrance. You see how worry and restlessness and fear and, and so on and so on. How these are all problems in our in the mind. And so that's, I think, the other lesson that this gives us is uh, a reminder, not that we have to uh, avoid craving or pleasure, but that, the, that we have to see clearly, and this is what we'll see, it's a claim that Buddha, Buddhism makes. Three claims. Two claims about about pleasure, one that it's ephemeral, it doesn't last, and two that it's limited, and the third claim about craving, that craving is dangerous, unlimited. And so with the limited nature of pleasure and the unlimited nature of craving, it's a doomed combination. You can't possibly, the equation will never work out in your favor. So. Rather than trying to always get what we want, the way we move is to give up wanting. If you give up wanting, give up craving, then you really find true peace and happiness. Not by avoiding, not by running away, but by seeing clearly. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. That's the Dhammapada verses 186 and 187. Thank you for listening. Thank mm -hmm. you.